This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lukan Czyski, and I'm your host today. Today, I am very happy to have on podcast uh, Marlene Lariuel, who's talking with us about her, one, of the, one of her latest books, Central Peripheries, National Rubin Central Asia, which is coming out, which has come out with UCL Press. Uh, Marlene, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thanks for the invitation. So, uh, Marlene, uh, I'd like to start uh, from the title of the book, because it's a very interesting uh, concept you, you are making here, this idea of Central Asia being both central and peripheral, or neither of them. So how would you explain to our, to our listeners what this title really means? Yeah, I think it was born from something that people who work on Central Asia know very well, which is this kind of combination of centrality in geography, centrality in history of Central Asia, and at the same time, a feeling of periphery of today's world, but also of periphery of our global knowledge and the fact that we often feel the region is not well integrated or recognized as being a a field that contributes as any other to the the, the global discussion. So I wanted to play on this kind of... uh, ambiguities between between the two. I can realize that seen from Central Asia, it can be a difficult title to accept. But I think it's encapsulating pretty well this kind, one of the, the paradoxes of, of the region, both historically today and for us as scholars studying it. I mean, this is a book about nationalism, and especially for those of us who are lucky enough to teach Central Asian studies, it is a godsend because we can now send our students directly to this resource, which is also open access. And one of the lenses which you do use in the book to discuss this nationhood in Central Asia is this idea of post-postmodernism. Uh, a little bit more on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a key element. I mean, it's a key concept to understand what seems to be contradictory 
in the the kind of symbolic positioning of Central Asia, but I think it's it works more globally to understand you know the rise of populism and illiberalism, for example, uh, globally, including in in Western countries. That there is a movement now, both intellectually formulated, but also kind of just lived or experienced, of wanting to move away from the kind of relativism of postmodernity and trying to go back to something that would be more classically modern. So, for example, narratives about the death of the nation are getting challenged by a whole group of people in different countries who said that, well, no, maybe the nation is not dead. Maybe we should go back to a certain form of nationalism, not in the pejorative sense, but in the sense of defining what makes us live together and recreating uh, uh, boundaries that are kind of meaningful for people. And I think that's where Central Asia is really a fascinating case because it's postmodern on many of its aspects. It's globalized, it's eclectic, but it's also very traditional in its value and it's promoting a nationhood which is very old-fashioned with all the cliché we can imagine about what were the, the, the least of attributes of a nation in, in 19th century. So it's very much inspired still by kind of the German romanticism and how it shaped nation building and, and this feeling that you to integrate the world, you need, you need to be a nation state, right? So nationalism understood not as a, something negative or something where you withdraw, but on, on the contrary, as a way to be universal, right? To speak to the rest of the world and to get your agency in the world, to get a brand, a recognition. And that's what I try to capture by saying that, that Central Asian nationhood is kind of showing us this kind of post-modernity in being both well-integrated and at the same time wanted to speak with a language of, uh, of nationhood that in the West we tend to see as kind of backward-looking. So I want to move a step back before we start talking about the, the structure of the book and the two sections in which you articulated it. Um, how did, did this idea come to you? What kind of path did you have as an author in preparing this book? So, in fact, the, the book is a combination of articles I published at different times of my research on Central Asia all over these last two decades. So it's a combination of my research on Central Asia and my interest in nationalism studies and everything related to ideology. And what I wanted to do it was really to put everything together, to update, to combine, to tie together and to kind of bring to a new uh, conceptual level the lot of different research that I have been doing because I think it's worth putting all these different elements together. First, it's still worth it's worth comparing countries inside Central Asia, so giving them their own autonomy of trajectory and recognizing how much diversity they show, but at the same time putting them together and trying to compare them. And then trying to look at different elements that can be both state-produced narrative, but also a more kind of grassroots or cultural expression of, of nationhood. So I just wanted yeah, to, to put everything together and try to, to make sense of all that. Absolutely. So in the, the, the first segment of the book, the first section, you actually uh, look at uh, three countries mostly, you know, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And then the latter part is, on the other hand, 
uh, only focusing on Kazakhstan. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the main context which you explore in, in, the, in the first part? And also a question which you may, you may expect from someone like me, why there is not a Turkmenistan chapter in the book? Yes, so let me begin by the second question. There is no, because it's the easiest one. There is no Turkmenistan chapter because first it was difficult, as you know, to do field work in Turkmenistan and because between what you publish on Turkmenistan and some of our uh, colleagues, especially our Czech colleagues, I was thinking there is nothing new I can really bring to the discussion on Turkmenistan. I think there have been a series of good articles on nation building in Turkmenistan, and we cannot really go further, or at least I couldn't go <laughs> further on that. So I didn't want it to kind of just repeat or compile things that have been done. And I recognize, of course, that it's a missing part because Turkmenistan is really a fascinating case. For the three other I worked on for in this first part, so Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, I was interested in, in putting in parallel all the different ways history is being rewritten, right? Each time in the three countries, you have a different combination of political legitimacy issue, uh, a way of looking toward history and selecting what are the key elements that want to be highlighted and those who want to be obscured, what are the key tensions into the historical narrative, what is the relationship to Russia and the Soviet past. And so each of these three countries show a different combination of these elements, right? And so I was interested in in both giving them a chapter, specifically each of them a chapter, to try to show the, the logic of the construction in each cultural or political context, and at the same time having them in parallel talking to each other, because I think the, the comparison is really is really fascinating. I mean, I very much learned um, from the chapter on Tajikistan, and because it's it, it just it's so interesting. Uh, this idea of Arianism, can you tell us a little bit more about this? But also uh, try to make your, your, your answer very much uh, comparative so we understand why this kind of idea only developed there and if there are any parallels between this idea and similar nationalhood construct elsewhere in the region. Yeah, so... Already in Soviet time, right? And that's why I have a third chapter that is about the Soviet roots of this national storytelling. That since in the 40s, the, the national narratives in each of the republic, it's to go as uh, uh, back as possible in time. So as ancient as possible to demonstrate the legitimacy of the nation, especially of its ethnic core. And so each country has to deal with that in a different way. For Tajikistan, of course, the fact that the country is the only Iranian-speaking country surrounded by uh, uh, Turkic-speaking country, the fact that Tajikistan uh, um, long was built on this feeling of having lost its two historical capital of Bukhara and Samarkand to Uzbekistan, but also having to deal with the neighborhood of Iran, right, which can be both an older brother but also a competitor, that kind of pushed Tajikistan at the uh, end of the civil war, so the civil war is of course also a key element, to build a a state narrative that is sponsoring this kind of Aryan identity as a way to dissociate Tajikistan from its Turkic neighbor, 
but also as a way to push Islam out of the picture. And that's, of course, the direct result of the civil war. So the idea was which kind of secular ideology that wouldn't be mentioning Islam, that would make us different from our Turkic neighbor, would work. And that's how this kind of iron theme has emerged. And of course, it was a, it's a very polemical one, and it was already at that time. And that's interesting to put that in comparison with Uzbekistan, where I tried to explain that, in fact, the, the Uzbek case is probably the one that has been the most straightforward because Uzbekistan could easily, already at the Soviet period, claim a lot of historical architectural elements or legacies that were located on its territory and that it could nationalize very easily, right? So the, 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 the construction for Uzbekistan was a pretty straightforward. Kyrgyzstan had to deal with another kind of issue, which was a, already since Soviet time, a plurality of sources to identify what is the original kind of ethnic core of the nation and its territorial location, and also dealing with the fact that uh, Kyrgyzstan couldn't really identify the dynasty that would work as a kind of symbolic, you know, pre-state that you can refer to. So each of these cases are showing these nuances, but of course, Tajikistan had to deal both because of its linguistic specificities and because of the context of the civil war, had to build something that was really very specific. So in this opening part of the book, you look at, you know, like Central Asia proper, you know, the, the, the southern part. And the section really opens with this uh, chapter, which utilizes a long durée approach to look at this kind of national discourses. Can you tell us more about the common linkages between these Soviet ideas and what we've seen the last 30 years? Or have we witnessed a very detached kind of national building and national construction in the post-Soviet era compared to what happened before 1991? Yeah, I think the the realizing at the level of um, um, dependency of the national narrative today on its Soviet roots was really something fascinating for me, and especially this element of kind of ethnic identity. And I was it was really a discovery for me to realize that already in the early 40s, so during the war, the Second World War, Soviet ethnology was already building a narrative about ethnic identity of each of the nation being the core of each of the republic and trying, as I was saying, to go back in history as far as possible to kind of legitimize the, the new nation. So this kind of obsession with going back in time to try to legitimize the nation and its territory today, that hasn't changed. I think the post-Soviet historiography is still continuing this Soviet construction of, of ethnicity that is called in, in Russian ethnogenesis. And that is still very much the, the kind of broad conceptual frame into which in which the, the nationhood is still thought today. What has been the big evolution between Soviet and post-Soviet time, of course, has been that everything related to the interaction with Russians, so 19th century and 20th century, had to be rewritten. But once you go back into history, like medieval, ancient period, the continuity between the Soviet and the post-Soviet narrative is really, really impressive. Mm, thanks a lot. Uh, the chapter which closes up this first segment is about Tengrism. Um, this is a kind of a buzzword which, I mean, I once asked a question while doing research on Eurasianism in Kazakhstan, 
and I got exposed to a 45 minutes answer from someone. It was all about Hinduism. I didn't really understand what it was, but I'm sure it was really important it's for this person. So can you please tell our listeners uh, what's the idea behind this chapter? What kind of, what are the, the, the key markers of Tengrism and why it's so important for a cross-regional understanding of nationhood and national building? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the, the, the chapter that is missing in my book would be a chapter on the place of Islam in yeah. this national construction, right? And I think very much, and I'm saying it several times in the book, but I don't have a chapter on that, is that Islam is the main unsaid themes of all these national construction that are still very much secular-oriented, still built in this kind of Soviet secularity approach and who don't really know how to deal with, with Islam. So Islam is really the, the, the big absent. And so what I wanted to do with the Tengrism aspect was to talk about religion, but it was not about Islam, right? So what is interesting with Tengrism is to really look like in uh, um, uh, almost like live construction of an ideological product that is present itself as an anti-Muslim uh, uh, narratives based on the idea that so the Central Asian society had the Tengri were animist, in fact, uh, uh, before. Uh, being converted to Islam. And so the, the process of national revival should go with the process of uh, of re religious born-again uh, aspect. And so you have this whole, and it's a minor, statistically speaking, it's a minor trend in Central Asia, even in Kyrgyzstan or in Kazakhstan, and even more, of course, in the other republics. But it's symbolically important, and it was widely discussed among some of the elites because precisely it was crystallizing the relationship between ethnicity and religion that is difficult to articulate or that is very sensitive to articulate when we talk about, about Islam, right? So this idea that, well, if we are having a, an ethnic revival, we should have an ethnic religion. Islam cannot be a ethnic religion because Islam is a universalistic religion. So we should go back to something that would be an ethnic religion. And that's an interesting construct because that's a very ideological a construct with a lot of so kind of, if we would compare it with the West, it would be a kind of neo-pagan uh, uh, narrative, very ethnicist, very ethnicized, sometimes oftenly racial or, or, or racist, that has been growing, I think, as an answer to the, the kind of uh, uh, post-Soviet ideological uh, kind of <laughs> collapse. And what I like in that notion is this idea of being born again, because then we can extract the Central Asian context and kind of link that to all the literature we have on the born again phenomenon, for example, in the US, right, among uh, uh, evangelical Protestants. So I like the, I liked work, working on this idea that if you are a reborn nation, you should have a reborn uh, uh, religion. And that was a good example to look at. Oh, thank you, Marlene. So uh, let's now move on the second part of, of the book, which is uh, the one that is exclusively focused on Kazakhstan. Obviously, this is a multinational country. It's a multi-ethnic country. Uh, so the, the construction of, of nationhood becomes an even more contested process than it will, than it will be anywhere else. Uh, you've got five chapters here, and, and if, if I'm not wrong, one of them is actually one of the new one that hasn't been published before. Uh, 
what are the main findings of this section of this section, Marlene? How can you tell the people this is the kind of point that I'm gonna flesh out in the second part of the book? So I think Kazakhstan it's a fascinating uh, example of, of nation building because it had enough diversity to have contested narrative. It was rich, or it is still rich enough to kind of produce a lot uh, uh, in terms of ideological construction. The Nazarbayev regime was had enough kind of uh, um, ideological uh, ambition and also international recognition ambition to really develop a well-articulated narrative. And so, what I was interesting in looking when looking at Kazakhstan was move away from the usual uh, uh, frame that we apply between so like there would be an ethnic and a civic framework, a Kazakh, Kazakhness and Kazakhstanness uh, aspect and to see how much it's in fact much more complicated, intricated, that it's a state narrative that is speaking different languages to different audiences depending uh, who is, is in front of them. I was also interesting in looking at the the non-state produce narrative, right? So at looking at what the political opposition in Kazakhstan, and especially the nationalist opposition, is trying to frame as an alternate uh, uh, narrative. I was interested in looking at television, which I say it very regularly, I think is a big missing piece in our knowledge of Central Asia. There is almost no study on television production while everybody is watching television still. And that would be a great way to look to have a kind of you know more cultural, culturally oriented insight into what is uh, you know meaning making in the in, in in this Central Asian country. So I had a chapter looking at at how the nation is discussed in some uh, mini series or, or or kind of reality show. And also what I was interested in, and that's the last chapter of the book, and that was part of a previous collective research I did on the so-called uh, Nazarbayev generation, it's to look at how much things are changing fast in Kazakhstan in terms of national identity. You have a generational change that is there, but more broadly, there is a slow, but I mean, depending if you want to eat slow or fast, change of mood in defining what is the Kazakhness, what is the Kazakhstanness, what is the relationship to Russia, what is the kind of globalized aspect of Kazakh identity. And progressively, we see this new generation arriving with a totally different vision of what should be Kazakhness and showing that it's inside the Kazakhness narrative that we see now the most kind of contested uh, 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 narratives, political tensions, what could be the place of Islam, the place of ethnicity, the place of the, the combination of being both local and globalized. So I think on that, Kazakhstan is a kind of exemplifying uh, uh, case. You are pretty clear in the, the title of this section that this is about the Nazarbayev order, which some may say a finish, some, some others would say it's still going on. What kind of an impact 30 years of authoritarian personalism had on nationhood production in, in Kazakhstan in every aspect that, that you mentioned before? Yeah, I think, of course, it's a key articulation. And I often, I mean, when I was writing this book, I was really wanted to do also a contribution to this, the kind of regime studies field, because I think that usually when we are, or, or until recently, the, the main studies on authoritarianism, 
in the region were missing the kind of consensual part, right? On what is based the consensus of the society in favor of the authoritarian regime. It's not only about kind of economic prosperity hopes. I think nation building has been a key element explaining the success of Central Asian states and and especially of of Kazakhstan in building a kind of co-creational space where people feel like this kind of nationhood narrative are talking to them and work with them. I think it's 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 a key element that should be articulated with the nature of of the regime. I think the, the Kazakhstan political order was flexible enough to be able to bring, you know, not to be entirely top down, but to have a lot of uh, bottom up mechanism. Even if I think now the society is changing faster than than the regime, and so there are more and more spaces of for contention and and tension. But I think it was interesting also to see how much, and on that, Nazarbayev has been really unique, I think, in the in the region, in uh, uh, trying to brand the country on the international scene. So there are always this interaction with a kind of external other that is kind of reverberating legitimacy on the regime, right? And so I was also interested in looking at this kind of uh, uh, interaction with the external uh, world and how Kazakhstan is both, I mean, how the Kazakhstani regime is talking to its own domestic audience, but also to an international or regional audience. And and of course, this latter point really opens up my next question, which is about this idea of Eurasia as identity generator. Uh, you got the chapter which traces down the history of Kazakhstan Eurasianism from Suleimanov down to Nazarbayev. Uh, this is very interesting, of course. Uh, what are the main points which you flesh out in that chapter? Is it been an organic evolution or has been kind of hiccups and moving, oscillating up and down in terms of how this idea has changed and how close this Eurasianism identity has been to the argument we were having before about these being uh, personalist regimes, authoritarian regimes, which shapes every political processes in line with its own agenda? Yeah, well, you have been working on on Eurasianism for and its importance for the the Nazarbayev regime much more than than me in your latest book. But what I was trying to do in this chapter was to go back to Soleimanov to show this kind of that the notion was there in the Kazakhstani society before it gets captured by the regime, right? And so, <coughs> where it's interesting when we look in this kind of. Um, Soviet time uh, Eurasianism is to see how much it was articulated a dialogue with ideological production happening in Russia at the same time, right? In the 70s, on how much Suleimanov was trying to put back Turkic population into the broader discussion of what has been Russia historically and which role should be given to Turkic population in the broader Russian empire uh, uh, construction. And I think then after yeah, it got progressively captured by the regime, and you have been showing that uh, much better than me, as a kind of tool of legitimacy, both for the international audience in, in projecting uh, uh, Kazakhstan as a kind of key country in Eurasia, and also for the domestic audience as a way to speak to, let's say, to say it uh, broadly, the, the Russian-speaking part of the population, either ethnically Russian or Slavic or, or ethnically Kazakh, but Russian-speaking 
uh, uh, urban audiences. What I found fascinating is how it has been such a sophisticated construction by the Nazarbayev regime and that they progressively got dispossessed of it when Russia kind of took over this Eurasian narrative after 2011 and, and Putin's idea of creating the Eurasian Union. And now having Kazakhstan finding itself in this ambiguous position of a, a, nar- a terminology that they have been promoting so much, that has so much resonance at home historically, that is suddenly no more matching what Kazakhstan wants to be and how it wants to be seen because it has been appropriated uh, so much by Russia that before Eurasia, kind of the, the Eurasianist destiny of Kazakhstan was a way to express multivectoralism. And now Eurasia is so much associated to Russia that in a sense it's showing <laughs> or illustrating a kind of Kazakhstani dependence on, on, on Russia. And so what I was also uh, uh, analyzing in the chapter is that there have been a lot of different narratives around uh, the Eurasianness of Kazakhstan that is much more nationalistic than what Suleimanov was was creating in the 70s. Narratives that are very close, in fact, to Kazakh classic Kazakh nationalism. And so we can see how the term has kind of multiple identity. And in fact, it's the same in Russia. It has also multiple level of nationalism, depending uh, who is using the, the 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 term. And so what seems to me interesting now is that uh, uh, the Suleimanov type of Eurasianism is slowly getting away because it was a Eurasianism that was first a Russian-speaking one that was very positively oriented toward Soviet modernity and integration with the Russian world. And all these elements are now kind of taking away slowly and moved uh, uh, into the into marginality. So it's fascinating to follow the evolution of a concept over, over 30 years. Even more over like yeah. half a century already. <laughs> yeah. Or the involution, because it's becoming more and more narrow. Uh, Marlene, I very much enjoyed this the chapter about television. Uh, I Because I, I actually haven't watched the series you talked about. I, I've been exposed much more to Nazarbayev movies. Those, you know, like very, very long uh, trilogy of, of propaganda movies. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, first of all, why did you use television? as a way to assess national building. It's a very interesting method to use. And also, in particular, about this specific TV series that you analyze in the chapter. Yeah, as as I was saying, I was always surprised that we don't have any study on television because the, the we think that, okay, television is entirely controlled by Central Asian governments. It's not an interesting production, but the point is not who is controlling. The point is that it's watched <laughs> by like 95% of the population. And we have so many great studies on the role of television in shaping our political and identity views in the West that I really wanted to try that for, for Kazakhstan. We also have great studies on the role of Russian television in the Putin's regime, right? And I think that's a missing element that we would need, need to develop for, for understanding Central Asian uh, uh, countries. So I was looking for also, I think, one of the key elements that kind of, that if we want to have a kind of grassroots, a kind of bottom-up view on what nationhood means, we need to look at television as the main producer of kind of cultural norms and normality. And so I decided to look specifically this kind of reality show 
called the uh, Science of the Steps because it was first very successful at that time. And it was a really fascinating combination of kind of very, you know, U.S. Empire-inspired reality show with a lot of adventure. So it's in the step. The, the, the guy is, is traveling a lot inside the country. And it's what I, I call the kind of uh, uh, entertainment of patriotism, right? The kind of fun patriotism where you are discovering your own countries, its uh, different regions, its different local histories, the different local heroes, but through something that is fun uh, 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 to watch. And I think this type of <laughs> patriotic entertainment is really a key element if we want to understand how people can embrace a, a nationhood. And as I was saying, we know it's very important, for example, for Russia, and still we haven't studied for, for Central Asia. And this one, this show was a particularly interesting one because it was a nice combination of so this kind of adventure aspect, but also some religiosity, a kind of new age spirituality. So how but always with a kind of still Islamic color, right? So it was a really interesting kind of postmodern, eclectic, mixed and new age uh, inspiration where you have adventure, patriotism, and religiosity or spirituality. Okay. Well, uh, Marlene, I'm going to have the, the very final question for you. Uh, and it pretty much asks uh, the question that you in the conclusion, I mean, what what are the missing pieces of Central Asia nationhood puzzles? What's missing in the picture that you that we as a community of scholars have painted so far? Yeah, so I think the key missing part is as often in the study of of uh, nationalism or nationhood is the consumer consumer part, right? In the demand side and not the su- supply side. Of course, we always tend to study the production of nationhood because it's easier to identify the producer, to read them, and to, to, to discuss their kind of institutional place. It's much more difficult to capture what is happening at the grassroots level, how people receive that state production or that uh, media production, but also what do they produce themselves, how everything is reinterpreted. It's much more difficult because you need, you need field work. It's mostly cultural anthropology. Based research, it could be survey-based research, but as we know, surveys are difficult to do in the region. So what I try to show, and I think research is growing, in fact, on that kind of consumer side, it's all the question related to memory, right? A popular memory, especially of Soviet time, but not only how popular memory is reconstructing the, the, the past. It's all uh, the issues of... so how history is taught us at school outside of the textbook, right? Because we know mm-hmm. that teachers very often divert largely from the textbook, but we don't really have a lot of studies kind of giving us that kind of flesh. How do we capture the Soviet nostalgia that is not part of very much the official narrative, but that we know is there among the population? How do we capture everything that is non-textual? Right, everything that is more visual, everything that is related to pop culture, everything that is related to folk history, folk historiography, revival of kind of genealogy, tribal uh, uh, identity. So all these aspects, I think, are the, the missing puzzles. But research is on its way, and I think it will be progressively 
uh, uh, growing and, and coming to kind of uh, uh, complement what we already uh, know about the nationhood processes in the region? Oh, no, absolutely. It's going to be a very exciting time for St. Leisure Studies in that sense. Uh, Marlene, I can only thank you for your time this afternoon. And uh, I wish you all the best, of course, with this book, uh, all the many projects that you also have. So today we have discussed uh, Marlene Laruel Central Periphery National in Central Asia, which is out open access for UCL Press. I've been Luke Ancheski-Rost. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.